welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly and me. I am Howard Parker. Today's very special guest is banjo player extraordinaire and bluegrass educator Alan Mundy. Alan started his career in 1969 with an album called Poor Richard's Almanac, where he was joined by Sam Bush and Wayne Stewart. Later, Alan joined Jimmy Martin's band during the MCA period. Arriving in Los Angeles in 1972, Alan joins the ever-popular Country Gazette with Byron Burline, Roger Bush, and Kenny Wirtz. In 1986, Alan became an early faculty member of the commercial music program featured at South Plains College in Leveland, Texas. The program became, if not the first, one of the first formal music programs that was aimed toward the aspiring bluegrass musician. Alan taught there for over 20 years. Over the years, Alan's been a regular contributor to Banjo Newsletter, Fretz Magazine, as well as serving on the IBMA Board of Directors. Alan is a highly sought-after instructor at many bluegrass and banjo camps. In this podcast, Alan chats with Katie about his years as a formal educator and his approach to learning and teaching the banjo and bluegrass music. Here is Katie Daly and Alan Mundy. Alan, uh, I think South Plains College out in Level Land, Texas, the appropriately named Level Land, Texas, is maybe the grandfather of many, many bluegrass college programs. Can you run over the origin of uh, how that all came to be out there? Sure, sure. Uh, South Plains College is located, as you say, in Level Land, Texas, which is near Lubbock, Texas. And my colleague for many years, Joe Carr, pointed out that uh, Level Land, Texas is the truth in advertising of West Texas because it is definitely level. It's out on what's called the Cap Rock, which is a big elevated plain out in West Texas leading to the Rocky Mountains over in New Mexico. And South Plains College is a, uh, I guess, properly called a community college. It was, I think, founded in the 50s uh, by a group of local people who wanted to have something so their kids didn't have to go off to far away lands to go to school. And they had a uh, president there named uh, Marvin Baker, and then a vice president named uh, Tubb, and his first name escapes me right this minute. Uh, but Mr. Tubb was uh, either a vice president or one of the deans, and he had a son who was interested in music and still is in music in Austin, is one of the premier uh, mastering labs in Austin, his son, Jerry Tubb. And he played music and uh, he said, are you gonna enroll in the music program at South Plains College? And he said, no, it doesn't have anything for me. It's all, you know, horns. It's a horn band, you know, symphonic band. So Mr. Tubb uh, stood in at the line back in these days, you stood, the students stood in line to enroll and he would ask uh, the students in line are you interested in music? Did you play music in high school? Yes, I was in the high school band. Are you gonna be in the South Plains College band? No, 
I'm not. Why not? Well, I'm not that crazy about the trumpet. Well, what kind of music would you be interested in? And he said, they would say, oh, I like country music or pop music or whatever. And I, he asked, would you be interested in a music program or a music class that offered that? And they responded, yes, they would. So he said, well, what if we hire somebody who can teach that kind of music and we'll just give that a try? So they ran an ad in, I believe, Country Song Roundup for just a little display ad, you know, small display ad uh, for a music instructor that could teach guitar and country music and uh, teach a lot of the instruments. Well, who answered that ad was very uh, fortuitous for the program and for the school. It was a gentleman named John Harton, H-A-R-T-I-N. And John uh, was from northern Iowa or Nebraska uh, and worked up there at that time as a uh, musical instrument salesman for con musical instruments who sold saxophones and trombones and uh, band instruments. And so he would travel around the, the north country up there uh, to music stores selling. And he grew weary of that, of the corporate life, and entered this ad, drove down to South Plains College, interviewed, and convinced them that he could teach anything, which, in a way, if you play guitar uh, and you can play a little bit on the mandolin or something, you can teach it. You can teach stringed instruments. And he knew country music. He had played in country bands and rock, early rock bands, and had toured, you know, uh, in country and rock bands up in his region. So he took this job. He and his family moved down there, and. Uh, began teaching there and he understood right away what, you know, coming from the corporate world, he understood uh, what the uh, college ran on, which ultimately is numbers. So the more students you have, the more money you can ask for, the more money they might give you and so on like that. So he spent a great deal of his energy, not only teaching, but recruiting. And he was a powerful recruiter and he would, he noticed that uh, where the musicians were at this moment that the college would be interested in was not, you know, country music in the bars and clubs, but at bluegrass festivals. So he would load up students and drive to the bluegrass festivals, which he could get to, which were Hugo, Oklahoma, mostly, and some few in Texas. And he would recruit and promote around there and he hired his first student the first student he had was a guy named tim mccaslin and he hired tim to teach because tim was interested in the banjo so that he hired this 18 or 19 year old kid to teach the banjo and uh started recruiting that way and Ultimately, and John, everything John did was uh, a plan. He planned everything, you know, or he had a plan about him. They didn't always work out, but he had a plan. So he got an article 
they had uh, the guy from Fretz magazine or picking i can't remember what it was at the time uh i think he actually visited the school and wrote an article about the school and how it was teaching bluegrass at a college level and uh got the article published and it was seen by tom t hall and tom t hall was doing at that time a special bluegrass show from the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, an hour show on for PBS. And he saw this article and thought that would be of interest to his audience. And he brought a crew out to South Plains College, I think 19, this is all like 1975 or maybe 76, 77, somewhere along in there. And uh, they filmed stuff, went back edited it down and it became maybe like a little 10 minute segment in this nationally televised PBS show. He couldn't have paid for advertising like that. No, no, but, <laughs> but he knew what he was doing. I mean, it mm -hmm. wasn't like it was a total accident. I mean, it was very fortunate that it, it went like it went, it could have gone nowhere, but he did it hoping it would do what it did, which it did. Got him a lot of national attention and ultimately uh, brought him in students. Uh, Leanne Womack, who's a name I tried to think of earlier, is a well-known country singer. She came. Mike Bubb, who we all know, a fine Nashville bass player. And, Stuart but he studied banjo with you. He did. He? he studied. He studied banjo with Tim McCaslin. And uh, then uh, Stuart Duncan came from California, studied with the faculty member named Ed Marsh. And Ed is actually still teaching at the school. So he's going on to 35 or more years out there, Ed is. And then also Ron Block came out there as a student. And, you know, that's where they all met ultimately uh, Ron and uh, Mike had a band together called Weary Hearts, I think was the name of the band, along with Chris Jones and uh, Butch Baldessari, who weren't, they weren't at the school, but uh, that was the band that Mike Bubb and Ron Block initially was in after they left school. But anyway. But Jeremy uh, Garrett was there? Jeremy was there. Now, before we go too far, this was in the late 70s by now. And uh, once again, we read that article. And when I say we Country Gazette, and I was living in Oklahoma and looking for gigs, you know how musicians are, bands are, you're looking for gigs. Here's a school. And Joe and I are both graduates of college. So we have a sense of what colleges can be and what they're kind of about and how to maybe approach them. So we contacted them and we visited the school twice, twice, uh, and had a great time. Got to meet John Harton and, and Ed Marsh and uh, Tim McCaslin and some other faculty members too, and, and students. And this was, uh, when we went there, it was after uh, Mike Bubb and Ron Block and Stuart Duncan had left. So they weren't there when we visited. 
and I believe, uh, if I can think of the band's name from Virginia that visited there, but I can't remember the name. But anyway, Alan Mills, whatever group Alan Mills was Lost in. and Found. Lost and Found, thank you. Uh, and they visited the school, so they, you know, tried to, even though they were in far west Texas, they tried to be a part of the community. And the second time we visited, Joe was not in, Joe Carr was not in the band. And they asked me about Joe. They were looking for a faculty member, you know, to expand because John was increasing the numbers and they needed another faculty member to take the load. They wanted to know if Joe would be interested. I told him he had left the band, was living in Dallas and would probably be very interested. And uh, they contacted him and in fact, he took the job. And then by 1986, I was, uh, things, you know, they were just slowing down for us a little bit. And I had a wife and child and, and thought a job with insurance might be a little better than <laughs> struggling out on my own as I had been, or out on our own uh, with the band. And I asked them if they'd be interested in having me out there. So I went out there in 1986, August, and started there in 86 and was there for 20 years and that's kind of how the program started and, and worked and john harton i can't give him enough credit he worked really really hard and was a very much of an entrepreneur about it besides being a, a good musician and uh, a very reasonable man he understood the game of increasing numbers and and whatnot. So anyway, the program grew numbers wise. I should mention also, just if people are interested in the nitty gritty of all this, uh, we, South Plains College being a community college, had an academic side and a technical side. So on the technical side was uh, auto diesel, air conditioning, the nursing program, cosmetology, uh, at the time, they had oil and petroleum service uh, department, you know, because West Texas has a lot of oil and uh, that vocational part is interested in training uh, people to go out into the local or regional community and, and add to the workforce. That was part of their charge. Then they had the academic side, which was history and math and English and uh, chemistry and whatnot that was preparatory to going on to a four-year school. Well, our music program and, and the traditional music program of band, symphonic band, was all on the academic side. Well, being on the academic side for us was not a good uh, place because what we had were students who came that were interested in the music and had no interest in the academic part. So as a result, we had what were called uh, non-completers. We had people that would enroll in our program, take courses, pay their money, increase the load, but only very few of them graduated. And so that was an issue, not with us or the students or anything, but it was with, as it worked its way back up the chain, 
to the money people, you know, and ultimately the legislature who said, you know, they would just look at the numbers and say, you've got all these enrollees, you know, let's say you have a hundred enrollees, but only two graduate, you know, we're wasting our money is what they saw. And so we worked to move our program from the academic side over to the uh, vocational side, which made a big difference. You know, that was a big, uh, a big thing. And we had a lot more completers under that program than we did at it on the academic side. And, you know, I'm going to say this because I think it's real important to say is if I said, I'm going to describe two ways of doing it. And you tell me which one is truly educational. One is you have students coming that have no interest in what you're trying to teach them, but very interested in a degree. Or you have students coming with great interest in the information you've got and no interest in a degree. And you go, which one is educational? You know, well, in my book, it would be the one where the people want the information. You know, they want to know how you do what you do and do not care a whit about having a degree that says I have a degree in bluegrass music. Whereas on the other side, you had people that just were in there that wanted to, I, and I wasn't being harsh. They did want the information. They did want to know how to do all that stuff, but they struggled with it. So anyway, it was a interesting circumstance uh, to do that. And it was quite an effort uh, to move that program over to the vocational side because you have to rewrite everything that matches the state numbers, you know, but that's all just nuts and bolts kind of stuff. In that, uh, what is the actual title of that uh, learning track? It, it commercial music what was you know originally it was called the country music program mm -hmm. then it was called country and bluegrass and the once again the problem is uh nobody else in the in the system had a program called country and bluegrass music so they had to change it to where it matched some other programs in the system and there was another school in Texas uh, that had a what a program called commercial music. So at some point, our program was changed from country and bluegrass to commercial music. And uh, that was just, in a sense, to make it compatible throughout the state system of what you call things. Did that, did any of that include um, studio work, audio production, any? You know, when I first got there, uh, they had just were in the process of building a new building that had a big recording and video studio production facility and uh, ultimately dedicated it to Tom T. Hall. So it was called kind of funny, the Tom T. Hall hall <laughs> you know but it's actually the tom t hall production center or something like that but uh once again john casting about for things to expand the program and the numbers uh started a recording 
track, you know, both studio recording and live sound reinforcement. And then a video production uh, program and all of that tied together. You know, here you have music recording facility, video production, uh, and ultimately uh, they included the business end of it. They have a business track now. So, you know, it's pretty inclusive and very impressive and, and the school can be proud of it, I think. I've had several uh, administrators tell me, you know, they travel to conferences of other deans of other schools. And he said, you know, one of them would tell me, oh, you're from, they'd say, I'm from South Plains College. Oh, you're from that bluegrass school. Well, <laughs> you know, <coughs> the English faculty would kind of be upset. Fact is, we got a, a letter one time that was addressed, had no more of an address than Bluegrass School, Leveland, Texas, and it got there. And uh, uh, it sort of irritated the English department that, you know, they were known as the school that was known for sort of hillbilly music. But uh, the fact the administrators liked it because they, they came from what would otherwise be sort of a nondescript little West Texas community college. They go to a meeting in Florida and somebody from Connecticut says, says, oh, you're from South Plains College. That's the school that has the bluegrass music program. Well, you know, it's like saying, oh, we've got this number one football team. Oh, you're from, you know, uh, Clemson or you're from Alabama. They've got that great football team. Well, we don't have football, but we have this music program. And John Harton, once again, would make the comment. He says, you know, a cool thing about the music program is, you know, if we had a football team anywhere you go, they would hate us, you know, because they hate, you know, a successful football program, if unless you're there. But with a music program, you could go anywhere. And they did. I think they went to Japan one year. They took the students. They had a tour that they did every summer, you know, called Country Caravan, that they would travel throughout the region. And sometimes, you know, they took them to Florida one year and they went to Japan one year. And, you know, so it's the kind of thing that's a real plus for a pro, you know, for a school rather than being a negative, which sports can sometimes be. So uh, what was a, a class load for you, a typical day? Well, you know, this is interesting. Uh, once again, not to get in the nuts and bolts of it, but you take an English faculty or a history or any class, and let's say they have 25 students. So you pay one faculty, you know, with the tuition of 25 students. Well, in the music program, music programs traditionally do private lessons. So you have one faculty member with one student, but you have to pay this faculty member like you're paying the English faculty, but they don't generate the, the uh, income that the English or the history faculty does. So they had us, uh, we were, our faculty called it, we're on the digital hour, which, uh, we were, for every hour, we were 
given three quarters of an hour, I think. So we had to teach actually longer, not as many students by any means, but longer hours to make a load. So a lot of the day was spent teaching private lessons, you know, maybe seven or eight private lessons a day. Then for ensemble classes, you would have, you know, a normal kind of ensemble, four or five people. And they pushed real hard to get the ensemble classes up to 10 or so, uh, or, you know, just anything to, where they could make it easier for them to pay us. And I, I appreciate it. I understand what's going on. Uh, but we tried to hold it down to, you know, a, more of a normal ensemble size. So you would spend, uh, I'd probably have four ensembles, four or five ensembles during the week, maybe two that met on Tuesdays and Thursday afternoons and one on Wednesday evenings. Then I would teach a history of bluegrass class. I got to where I was teaching that. Joe would teach a history of country music, you know, class. And, and uh, you know, as a student, what you would do is you would enroll in private lessons. You know, if you were a banjo player, you'd enroll in a lesson with me. You could enroll in two lessons if you wanted. You could enroll, you know, with Joe for a mandolin lesson or Ed with a fiddle lesson and a banjo lesson and a guitar lesson with one of the guitar instructors and an ensemble. And there were uh, ultimately almost anything you would hear on the radio in pop music, except for maybe rap or hip hop at the time. They may have them now. Uh, they had an ensemble, they would create an ensemble to uh, uh, take advantage of that, you know, and if you're trying to teach students to go out into the world and play music, then you would listen to the radio and go, well, that's the kind of music you're going to have to play when you get out there. So we need an ensemble that plays that kind of music. So they would create one. One of the faculty would study up on it and uh, go do it. We had some incredibly talented faculty members that could jump on anything and, and just do it. You know, I was terribly impressed and uh, sort of was the weak, weaker one in the group because uh, I could only do bluegrass, basically. I mean, I could do a, a low-level country ensemble, and uh, but I never did. But uh, anyway, that would be the load of the for the day. And then for me, bluegrass music was the easiest music to travel. So when people would call up and want some music for an event, it would usually wind up on my desk because it's a lot easier to take acoustic music out than it is to load up a trailer full of sound equipment and and drums and electric pianos and amps and whatnot and take it out to play for 30 minutes at some event but i did a lot of that all over west texas all over went a lot a lot of cool places i saw a lot of west texas it's beautiful you know i love it i loved it i have there. a question about these events yeah. would uh the event pay the school to have the band come or were you uh they just getting the experience of playing in front of an audience well for the students it was all an experience they didn't get paid uh they would whatever event we played at would possibly donate some money that we would use to cover our expenses hopefully but we never we didn't have a set price or anything and it kind of 
you know, being a professional musician, it kind of stung uh, a time or two. I remember a, a group from uh, Plainview, Texas called and they wanted us to come up there with a group. And I asked them, I said, do you have a, a budget for the music? And she said, oh, no, they warned us, never pay the musicians. And I thought, oh, <laughs> I thought, man, that that hurts. You know, who warned or, them that? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I told her, I said, do you have a concession stand? And she said, oh, yes, we do. And I said, well, do you give it away? And she said, no, we don't. And I said, well, you know, it would help if you could donate a little bit of money for our travel expenses. She wouldn't do it. So that's one we didn't go do. But good. just, you know, there's a lot of that. But, you know, uh, the experiences for the students was really good. And, you know, we would get some uh, mature students, you know, some older students, and they sort of balked at going playing for nothing. And I don't blame them, but I couldn't, and I couldn't rectify it at all. So. Well, yeah. let me ask you about a, an expansion of South Plains Bluegrass program was uh, Camp Bluegrass, which. Yes. That's yes. still going. Going. Oh, it is. It is. We've had to shut down here the last couple of years because the school would not allow us in there. Uh, uh, we use the school facility. They've been a great supporter of it. And this again, Camp Bluegrass was John Harton's idea. And it's not unlike a lot of public schools and facilities that get used during the school year, but sort of lie fallow during the summer. Mm -hmm. And so the school already had like basketball programs and band, a band camp for the, you know, traditional horn band, symphonic band. And John uh, said that uh, we ought to try to do a, you know, summer music camp. So Joe and I put our heads together and ultimately we brought in Joe's wife. Let's, let's credit. I was just going to say Paula. Yes. Did yes. a lot of work there. Yes. Yes. Well, so what I was going to say is we ran it for a couple of years by ourselves. And, you know, early on, we only had 15 or 20 people. And uh, which was real cool because I would bring my, uh, my uh, barbecue grill over and uh, one of the meals we'd fix, I'd, I love sausage, you know, from Central Texas is the best sausage in the whole world. And I don't care who you are or where you are. I'm saying that uh, it's the best. And I would bring some up and have a big cookout for them. You know, when it's only 15 or 20 people, you can do that. But it soon grew beyond what we could manage, just Joe and I. And so we brought in Paula Carr, Joe's wife. And she became the sort of administrator and uh, and she's been in there ever since. And we're in like uh, 33rd, 34th year, something like that. It's been a very long time. And once again, just like the school is one of the early music programs at a college level, it's also one of the very first sort of band camps, I think. It, I'm sure it's not the first, but it's one of the very earliest ones and maybe the longest running one, I don't know. I really don't know. But anyway, it's, uh, like I say, we haven't done it the last couple of years, but plan to do it again in 22. Uh, 
try to get, hopefully everything is back and we're all safe and in good health and whatnot and do it again. So yeah, we've done, we did that. And it's a week long camp from Monday to Friday afternoon. And uh, it's evolved. It's gone from, I think 15 was our first year. And we've had as many as 130 or 140. And it sort of averages out around 100 every year. And we do banjo, guitar, bass, fiddle, dobro, and vocals. And mandolin, if I didn't say mm -hmm. mandolin. So we try to do it all and uh, keep everybody happy, you know. So, so that has a website, campbluegrass.org? Oh, dot com. Dot com. Yeah, okay. yeah, you can check that out. It probably won't be up right now because we've had to uh, cancel this year. Uh, and I say the school has been incredibly supportive of it uh, and appreciate them very much. And they, in abundance of caution, uh, decided not to do it this year. Certainly they didn't do it last year, but they decided not to give it one more year. So we're looking forward to uh, 2022. Well, uh, and nowadays uh, you are teaching at many camps, and I realize some have been canceled because of this past year. But what are some of the camps that you're instruct uh, an instructor? Well, <clears throat> Camp Bluegrass certainly, Steve Kaufman's uh, camp in Maryville, Tennessee, Banjo Camp North in Massachusetts. Uh, American Banjo Camp in uh, out in uh, Washington, uh, Midwest Banjo Camp in near Lansing, Michigan, Swanee Banjo Camp in Florida. Uh, I've taught at the Augusta Heritage Center uh, at uh, the Swannanoa Gathering in North Carolina. There's a banjo camp in Idaho, in Weezer, Idaho, that is really wonderful. I've taught out a couple times. Uh, I'm what about Nashville? Nashville, uh, there's one coming up. Uh, for, this is interesting. It's a former student, a banjo student named Ben Clark, who has a website and a business called Banjo Ben Clark, and he sells product and uh, lessons online and is very, very successful. He's a really excellent musician. He came to the school, has a really great story that you should read about on his probably website. He came to school as a graduate student from Texas A&M in etymology, but just got bit by the banjo and came out there and, and was really fantastic. He's a excellent, excellent musician, uh, uh, plays piano, dobro, mandolin, banjo, and yeah, there he is. I think there was an article about him. An article uh, in this month's Bluegrass Unlimited. Bluegrass Unlimited. Yeah, you should read yep. that and believe believe every word of it. He's a wonderful human being. Uh, when he left the school, he got a job, and I can never remember her name, with the hottest female singer going right now. Anyway, he worked in her band and got tired of traveling, I suppose. And... Uh, uh, started this business and is very, 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 very successful. He bought what was left of Janet Davis music. Oh, as a has a uh, mail order supply thing. Now, also, he has he comes from a large 
family from around Kilgore, Texas. And he has two sisters, Penny and Katie Clark. And they also came to school, South Plains College, and were students and stayed there two or three years, took banjo. They both play banjo and mandolins and guitar and sing. They sing up a storm and Ben and them had a group called the Purple Hulls because they're all redheaded. And I guess, and I think their dad had a farm and, and maybe grew purple hull peas and or beans, whatever they are. And uh, but anyway, they're fantastic musicians. The girls still play together quite a bit. Ben spends most of his time uh, with his business. But uh, so Katie Clark, the banjo master of that unit and Ben and I will be teaching banjo at uh, his camp in Nashville in mid-April. And I just read today, he's got one he's doing up in Anchorage, Alaska. So he's a quite a go-getter. Hire him for it. He's fantastic. Great. Well, let me ask you, uh, if I want to come to a college level or if I, a class, or if I want to have private lessons, or I want to go to a summer camp, um, how do I, how do I prepare myself to go? Uh, obviously I should know the instructor and what I wish to get out of there. I should know my, my playing ability level. Uh, what do you, what are your recommendations along with? Well, those are, that's a good place to start. It's just to have a fairly good sense of, you know, a lot of these camps try to organize the students into playing levels. And a lot of the camps use just beginner, intermediate, advanced, but sometimes there's sort of a, a variety of, you know, beginner or basic. Sometimes they use the word basic and they'll have a lower intermediate and an upper intermediate and sort of different uh, criteria or, or levels like that. And uh, I taught at the Bela Fleck camp that one. And he has them uh, organized into wood types, and they all mean a different level. And uh, so, you know, birch and walnut and mahogany, but in the end, they all mean uh, a certain playing level or skill level. And for Camp Bluegrass, it's just self-regulated. You know, if you see yourself as a, a intermediate, you go to the intermediate bunch and if you see yourself as a advanced you go you sign up as an advanced player and i think bela actually auditions people oh. so he places them you know you have to submit an audition video i think it is and are placed in certain groups so that's a little more formal which is good because he's he's running a, a very large camp and, and needs some sort of control, you know, organization to it to get underway. Whereas many of the camps just leave it up to the enrollees to organize themselves. So, you know, you would want to have a sense of how you might fit in. And sometimes they'll give a short description of what a beginner player is or an intermediate player. And most of them, when they say beginner, they really don't mean uh, that you buy your instrument on the way to the camp. 
you know, and I only say that because we've had students, we had a retired insurance man from New Jersey who drove down and he bought one of everything on his way down, a banjo, mandolin, guitar, dobro, fiddle, and showed up with a car full of instruments that had never, ever played anything. And uh, so, but as these camps, you know, you need to be able to know what it, for banjo anyway, I'm just talking about banjo right now, GC and D seventh, you know, be able to pretty well, you know, get your instrument close to being in tune. Although tuning is one of the more difficult things that musicians struggle with from day one to the just before they go into the ground, they're still trying to get get their instrument in tune. And uh, so you need that. You need uh, to be aware of what you're getting into. If it says bluegrass, that's one thing. If it says old timey, that's another thing. So you have to be aware of that kind of dichotomy in banjos anyway. And uh, you have to, if you're bluegrass, you have picks, capo. I'd bring some tab paper to write stuff down. Uh, a lot of people. How about a recording device? To are you allowed? Oh, to yeah, yeah, something to record with. Usually just audio, not a video. Video would be good, but it you know it winds up taking a lot of time in class. You know, people want to set up a tripod, and then all of a sudden it takes up space, and it's just ultimately easier just to do if you can manage with just the audio part. That's really good. And they always ask you to ask permission of the faculty member before you do it. And I'm always more than willing. I don't care. You know, I just want them to learn uh, the best way they can. So you bring those kinds of things. Uh, another thing that I think is important is to have listened. You spend a lot of time listening. And if you're going to play the banjo, listen to the banjo on, you know, certainly Earl Scruggs and and uh, whoever your favorite players are. It would be nice if you're going to study with a certain faculty member that you listen to their recordings. And on YouTube, you know, you can find a lot, a lot of stuff. Almost anything I've ever done is on YouTube uh, in some fashion or another. And you can go listen to how I play. And uh, if it interests you, if I do something that you like, you know, you can bring in a recorded example, you know, on such and such a tune, you do this. How do you do that? That would be a great, great thing to ask in some classes, you know, not, you know, an advanced class or an intermediate class. That'd be a great question. And, you know, because people do ask, you know, there's a song, you do this thing. Could you do it? And you go, well, I've done a lot of things on a lot of songs. Well, you know, it's it's right after this on, and they try to describe it. Whereas if they had the recording and could play the example and go, oh, yeah, yeah, here's how I do that. And I could go to the board and write it out possibly, or that would help a lot. But, you know, uh, another thing, you know, just talking about on the teacher side, one thing people have to need to have in mind when they go is that every teacher is different. They have different experiences. They learned a different way. And, and another thing that's real uh, important to know is that, you know, in the symphonic band, if you're a trumpet player, they've been teaching trumpet for 300 or 500 years, and they've got it down. You know, there's the German this and the French that, but they, basically they've got how to, if you want to learn to play the trumpet, we know how 
you know, step one, step two, step three, and you can learn to play the trumpet. But on this music, you know, it's all just made up by uh, a bunch of people that kind of learn to play in a mishmash of ways. I learned to play in a certain way, you know, and uh, you take uh, uh, Bela Fleck learned to play in a different way, and uh, Ned Lubarecki and Bill Evans learned to play uh, in a different way. And so they all have sort of a different way that they bring to the, their class. And as a student, you have to kind of take in what they have to offer and, and do the best you can with it because it, uh, as far as I know, there is, we haven't had 300 years of, of uh, Earl Scruggs banjo playing under our belts teaching to figure that out. Not yet. What's that? I said not yet, but we will someday. We're working on it. We're working That's on it. That's right. But on the other hand, for me anyway, I can only talk about me. I've thought about it a lot. I taught a lot, a lot of students, and I've had some successes and, and some not so very much successes. But I have this way of teaching that uh, I've tried to decide what it is that you need to be able to do to play. You know, you have to be able to control your fingers, you know, and I always make a joke of, uh, you know, you have a student and you go put your first finger on the first fret of the first string. Then you go, no, that's the second string. No, that's the third fret, you know? So, it, and I know it's confusing. You have all these numbers. It's just a, a snowstorm of numbers. So you have to kind of get used to, you know, relating to numbers. And I always like on banjos, it has a position marker at the first fret and the third and the fifth and the seventh and the tenth and on down. And I always ask, oh, do you know why banjos have a position marker at the first fret? And the answer is, it's because we're banjo players. We need all the help we can get, you know. So, uh, but anyway, I've thought a lot about how you have to control your fingers. You have to be able to move them in a certain, certain way. And I can explain that. I can explain how, how banjo playing goes. But the student has to put in the time. And one of the questions they'll often ask is, how long will it take? And the sad answer is it takes as long as it does. You know, there is no way around it. Uh, practicing. And I remember talking to Sam Bush and he was talking about Bela Fleck when they were in a band together. He said he would get up in the morning and be playing and they would go out to breakfast. Do you want to go? No, I'm going to play. And they would go through the whole day. Do you want to go to lunch? No. Do you want to, we're going to go out to the mall? No. You know, that he put in just an ungodly amount of time practicing. And anybody you see standing in front of you playing in an, in an admirable way that you like is be part because they put in a lot, a lot of time. And so that's part of the deal. You know, I want to say one thing uh, about today, you know, that is different, certainly in my, my time, but I'm going to go, I sat in on a class that was taught by 
by Alan Shelton. <clears throat> and Alan Shelton was the great, 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 I can't say it enough times, banjo player that played with Jim and Jesse. Just an incredibly beautiful player. And he described how he learned, or part of his learning. He said when he was a kid, he said Flattens Drugs would come out with a 78 about once every two months or so. And he would go down to the hardware store and buy it. They bought it back, sold them back then. And he would take it home. And he said one side was usually more of more interest for a banjo player. So he said, I would put that on my record player with that one side. Let's say it's uh, Head Over Heels in Love With You by Flatten Scruggs. And he said, I would listen to that for a month or two months. I would play along with it. He would play it. I knew it from the beginning groove to the last groove. I knew it. And he said it would stay on there until the next Flatten Scruggs record came out. I'd go down and buy it. I'd put it on and it would be the only thing I would listen to for two months. Now that right there is a way, way different listening experience than what we do nowadays, especially with CDs and downloads and, you know, iPods, you know, playing it on your iPhone and just having 150 tunes go by in, you know, a day's time or whatever. I don't know. But I don't think people listen as in, in detail. And I can remember just talking to my students. You know, I'd play a Jim and Jesse record. And one of the students asked me, what key is that in? I said, it's in B. And I'd say, you know, not only do I know that is in B, I know what every key, every song on that record is in. I know who kicks it off. I know the order of solos. And in some cases, I can play them. I couldn't play Jesse's mandolin breaks or the fiddle breaks, but I could play Alan Shelton's banjo breaks because I sat and listened to them. So, you know, those are the kinds of things, ways people need to listen uh, would be helpful. I shouldn't say it's, it's the way, but it would be helpful to listen to just one, pick out one. You know, the most beautiful recording in bluegrass music for me is... Uh, Blue Ridge Mountain Home by Flatten Scruggs. It is so beautiful. I mean, the tones and the playing and the singing and just the recording and just the feel of it. It is incredibly beautiful. And just listen to that. And I would tell the banjo players, develop a language for writing out what the banjo does. I mean, just a word or two, you know, and, and for me, if you're playing backup, one of the things, words I use is cruising, you know, it's just a roll over a chord, you know, develop a language for what he's doing. Oh, he's doing a fill in lick there. You can name the licks. Oh, that's the, you know, uh, pork pie lick, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, just develop names and write down Listen to it and write down what's happening the whole way from the very first note to the last note. As soon as the needle goes down, start writing. Write down and make yourself listen to the banjo. If you're a banjo player, if you're a fiddle player, listen to the fiddle. If you're a guitar, listen to the guitar and try to listen through the rest of the music. And sometimes it's not going to be audible. 
but when it is just write down what's happening there so you start to develop this picture of how the music is organized and it, you know for flatten scruggs and jimmy martin i worked with jimmy martin and uh, it's highly organized it may not sound it you know some of the best music in the world sounds like it's just these people playing how do they do that well in part it's pro they all have a role uh, in the music and you kind of figure it out by listening a lot and you'll be a lot a lot of bands do it different but flat and scruggs uh if you're a banjo player that's where i would start just one more quick thing there is a book out called masters of the five string banjo and in it uh is a page of advice that banjo players give and it's not exactly this i'm sort of uh rewording it but the advice goes like this <clears throat> learn everything earl scruggs did next advice don't copy anybody next advice learn all oral stuff next advice have your own style well it sounds like they're telling you two different things but really what they're what they're saying in my mind is as a student of the banjo you want to learn everything Earl Scruggs did exactly as he did it. As an individual art, artiste, you don't want to copy anybody. You want to have your own style. And so it's two different things. As a, First is a student of the banjo, and then the second one is as an artist. And uh, I think of copying Earl Scruggs or anybody if you're trying to Alan Shelton for me, or Doug Dillard, or Bill Keith in my day, and others, Don Reno. Uh, when you copy them, what you're doing is you're taking a pilgrimage. You're trying to put your, you know, just like a religious pilgrimage, where you try to put your, as you walk, you try to put your foot, your feet in the same footprints of whoever it is you're following. And in doing so, you get understandings that can't be put in words. And it's the same thing with, if you study Earl Scruggs, for instance, and you play, try to take Blue Ridge Cabin home, and if you tried to play it exactly like Earl Scruggs, you would learn so much about how the banjo is played, what its role is in a bluegrass band, why he did one thing and not another, or you may even learn that he could have done something else and it would have been good but you learn a lot of insights and understandings that you don't get by me or anybody else necessarily saying the words you know to do that so anyway just i'm kind of going on and on but that's it i'm done and that was katie daly talking with banjo ace and music educator alan mundy learn more about al monday online at al mondays banjo college.com that's a-l-m-u-n-d-e-s-b-a-n-j-o-c-o-l-l-e-g-e.com al mondays banjo college.com bluegrass stories is hosted on soundcloud.com and can be streamed on soundcloud facebook apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, amazon music spotify and katydaily.com as always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories.